0: i on the LTO defending your right to speak and to listen. This is the Free Speech Union Podcast. Hello, I'm Daphne Whitmore, a member of the Free Speech Union. I'm speaking today with Nina Power. She's a writer, a social critic and a philosopher. She was previously a senior lecturer in philosophy at Roehampton University in Britain. And she's the author of a new book, What Do Men Want? Masculinity and Its Discontent is the subtitle. So welcome, Nina. Lovely to have you on this free speech podcast. Thanks, Daphne. Now, I first heard about you in 2020. Uh, there was an exhibition in central Auckland which was cancelled. and you had written a commentary for the exhibition. So I thought, well, we could talk about that a bit later on. But first of all, let's talk about your book, What Do Men Want? Um, It's already had some attention in New Zealand. There was a book review, and it made the front cover of The Listener. The Listener happens to be the oldest magazine in New Zealand. So it had a provocative headline. um, It was the war on men. Is it over? So I'm looking forward to reading your book. But just thought I'd ask you to first start like why I understand you're a feminist and why what made you choose a topic about men?
1: Well I think I think there is actually quite a long tradition of feminists writing about men. Um, Certainly in the second wave you had books like Bell Hooks, The World to Change uh, for example and many books that dealt with masculinity and not only um, in a kind of derogatory fashion. You know, I think we have a very stereotypical negative image of feminists as being man-haters and so on. And actually, perversely, some people who call themselves liberal feminists today would probably fall into that category. But I think genuine feminists are not, um, don't hate men at all. I think feminists are interested in how um, external pressures shape how we feel we ought to behave and how we should be kind of working collectively to erode or or get rid of these sorts of expectations so that everybody can live together in a more peaceable and harmonious way. Um, And I think also in the socialist tradition to try to understand how both men and women are being exploited and oppressed and whatever differences they have between them, they have actually far more in common and more solidarity between each other. And I think In place of these sorts of thoughts from the second wave or from socialist or left wing traditions, what we have today is an extremely divisive logic that seems to essentialize entire groups of people on the basis of um, characteristics which are not uh, chosen by them. Um, And this doesn't serve anybody other than the elites. It certainly doesn't serve normal men and women. So I wanted to write about men because I felt that in the last five, 10 years or so, there'd been an increasingly sort of vicious and again, divisive essentialist discourse um, around men um, that was uh, sought to portray men as somehow kind of essentially uh, bad. And I mean, apart from anything else, this simply isn't true in my experience of the men in my life. Uh, My father, my brother, my male friends, my male partners, um, you know, and I, I wanted also to look at the 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 more sort of depressing side of being a man today. So not only being attacked on the basis of your sex, but also questions of depression and suicide and a lack of social role. And I think in that sense, it's a kind of humanist book. I think if we care about each other, then we should care um, when things aren't going well. And I'm interested in in not reproducing spirals of resentment you know i think this is the easiest thing in the world to do to get into this back and forth where it's like well your group did this your group did that you know you it never ends you know mm-hmm. there has to come a point at which people lay down their kind of weapons whether they're words or or otherwise and uh, and talk again
0: yeah well i'm and certainly we need to recognize that we've made a lot of headway too it's not like things are where they were 100 years ago in terms of Um, equality of the sexes. I think it's, I mean, it's an interesting time we live in when on the one hand there's a lot of sensitivity, when microaggressions are pulled up very aggressively. Um, Yeah, and and why do you think it is now socially acceptable to denigrate men verbally? Um, It's not really frowned upon, particularly in social discourse. And, you know, terms like toxic masculinity are used very liberally.
1: I think there are maybe several reasons. I think we've moved in many of the Western countries to a more kind of um, female-dominated industries and economies, Um, certainly in Britain. uh, Under Thatcher, she closed down a lot of the industries in the 80s where men tended to dominate. Um, You end up with much more kind of uh, communicative, service, internet-based type um, uh, industries, which, which don't really suit men particularly um you see a lot of women in in human resources um kind of making the rules about <laughs> what can and can't be said um and i i don't know i think partly there was a kind of uh, a a desire for for vengeance on the basis of a perceived you know historical asymmetry um but i think as i suggest in the book you know the way in which the word patriarchy for example is used today is extremely uh, poorly like it doesn't actually explain anything it's just a word that's thrown out there as as a kind of uh to to describe monsters uh if you like it's not a historical account and and again in the second wave there were feminists and women working on these concepts in a far more subtle and intelligent uh way and they didn't for one second for example blame women or or describe vi- women as victims which is again the other uh, flip side of the 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 discourse against men is the idea that women are somehow essentially victims um which again feminism is is absolutely opposed to uh in my mind uh, and many other <laughs> many other people's minds or at least it used to be um so so in that sense it's kind of very yeah a very second wave um book i I think, again, I think that there's a lot of people who benefit from divisive logic of all kinds. Um, It's very easy to get people to blame other groups um, for their own miseries or lacks, you know, psychoanalytically, if you feel like your life is not going well. um, or you've had an encounter with one member of a group and you then extrapolate from that to say well all of the members of this group are somehow bad and evil and responsible for my misery um it's it's manifestly obvious whichever groups we're talking about that this Uh, this suits (laughs) people who don't want you to look too closely into the power and and money and so on that they actually have. You know, this is a a discourse that punishes people at the bottom who are kind of fighting over scraps and blaming each other rather than looking at the the bigger
0: whole. Mm -hmm. And do you think um, this kind of outlook, I mean, it's relatively common in the West. I don't know how how common it is and really amongst the working class, I think far less. So I think there's far more solidarity between men and women. Yeah. Um at that level. But what about in other countries? Do you think it's do you know if it's really pervasive in non-Western societies?
1: I don't I don't think so. I mean, I think you know, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right to say that. I think this discourse has only gone so far, you know, this is a very sort of left liberal middle-class discourse, you know, where you're engaging in these forms of um, oppression, you know, Olympics or whatever to use that phrase. Um, I, I don't think it's, it's spread, but it's too far, but it's one of those things. It's like, there's something kind of viral about some of these ideas, you know, it's like, I don't know, like American racial politics seem to be applied everywhere, even though they're not the same in different countries. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. we, there's something hegemonic about the way in which people talk about certain issues um, that, again, is is sort of inappropriate. So um, I think, hopefully, it won't kind of go everywhere. I think every everyday uh, experiences that most people have um, contradict this, you know, Um, divisive narrative Uh Um, and that's more important to most people than whatever some silly article on the internet Um, but nevertheless I suppose you know it's a way of of launching into these bigger questions about what role men have particularly in western societies you know why there is this kind of lack of social roles you know how we can kind of get along better together at the everyday level um which we kind of have to do we live in mixed cultures you know we 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 men and women are around each other all the time now this is one of the main features of modernity um and yeah i mean i i focus in the book obviously on western countries i you know i i i don't think it would be appropriate for me to make general claims about other places that i'm not aware of um so it is it is restricted in that sense but i think it's indicative um also in that way
0: yes I mean we've got very much the same sort of statistics in New Zealand in terms of um male suicide men uh faring far worse than women and many health statistics statistics um more dangerous activities you know by males and so on um interestingly I mean the other side of the equation really is, is the work that was done in the book um invisible women by Caroline. Cre mm-hmm. Perez, which also shows actually in many ways society is not geared up for women. so I, I guess what what we're seeing here is the reality of the differences of the sexes which perhaps modernity has sought to obliterate and then we've come up against reality. yeah um,
1: exactly. I mean in a way both both things are true, right it's it's both true that uh, women aren't taken as the paradigmatic model for various medical things or, you know, uh, and so on. And I know she goes further than that, but it's, you know, the default human being uh, in many cases is the man, but it doesn't therefore mean that men are (laughs) doing very well. It's like, uh, you know, these things are extremely complicated. And and I guess one of my main points is that we increasingly live in an era that that seeks to pretend or play down sexual difference. But it but it is it remains kind of completely relevant politically and socially and and so on. Um, And so I'm very keen to say, look, sexual difference exists. It's real. It's important in particular um, domains, you know, and and we'd be foolish to pretend that it that it isn't. But that would do damage to both men and women, in fact. Um, And you know i'm sure you're aware that even saying something like that is is seen as sort of you know absolutely um terrible you know mm, i know there was
0: well there was a little twitter storm over the listener review and um the provocative headline it had and uh, yeah so it does seem to be difficult to have civil discussions about things um and i guess social media plays its part in things being short and soundbitey and argumentative mm-hmm. rather than reasoned and expanded on um well you've come out of a fairly long career in academia um or, or many years as a lecturer and I understand you've left that now you're no longer teaching at a university or you were a senior um, lecturer yeah for some I,
1: time. I yeah I I sort of um the we lost the kind of fee battles in 2010 so the universities have become much more kind of commercialized and um you know much more bureaucratic and i was kind of just i had enough <laughs> and i mm-hmm. wanted to do um uh, more post-academic and and you know the book on men is kind of more of a popular book it's not an academic book so i i'm now a senior editor at compact magazine which is a new american magazine that's um, just launched, which tries to bring together people of differing views. Again, how shocking. <laughs> uh, people who are left and right and religious and non religious, and you know, to actually have a discussion about liberalism and where we go from here and you know where we're headed. Um so I yeah, I'm very, very open to dialogue. I'm I still teach a bit here and there. I teach adult education, and I also teach on various post academic or para academic platforms, which I find much more uh, engaging and interesting because you're just directly in contact with people talking about things they want to talk about, you know, and you're not prey to the commercial uh, bullshit of (laughs) universities and major institutions, many of whom have become very, very heavy with their own systems. And they're also very, very prey to cancellation and these kinds of things because they're extremely worried about losing money and also their reputation. And many of them, even if they've started out with grand principles of uh, freedom of speech and, and dialogue and so on, I've, I'm now completely more or less capitulated to, uh, you know, someone sending an email, which is pathetic. So I'm not interested in these big institutions. I'm also very influenced by Ivan Illich, who's a great uh, critic of institutions or what happens to in- institutions. So I prefer to do things uh, outside
0: of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand it could be quite liberating. And I guess I mean he was writing what in the nineteen seventies or earlier? Was yeah, it his yeah. his most yeah. famous books are from the early seventies. Yes, yeah. So um I mean I understand it's I mean it's across all the Western universities by and large, you know, cancellations and like you say, it's just they the these big the managers of these places seem to just fall over the minute there's a few tweets and emails and mm. It is quite astounding, yeah. isn't
1: it? No, it's ridiculous. I mean, some idiot set up a, like a group to go after me and gave it a name, but it doesn't exist, right? Like she just, she's just pretended it's a group, and you know, they were tweeting places where I was giving a talk, and and some institutions got so frightened that they were paid for security guards. You know, I was giving lectures with people like protecting me, and it's like, oh come
0: on, you know, how have we got to this <laughs> this point? Yeah, very very strange. In that regard, and I think, well, we'll see how it, it pans out in time. But as more people stand up against it, I guess it, it will diminish the the doxing and the cancellations. Um, but who knows? Who knows how far it's got? To, this particular craze has got to carry out, which I guess kind of leads me to um, one of our starting points. Was that I I, yeah, I heard about you through a cancellation, and it's often the case, isn't it? The Streisand effect. That um, I would not have heard about a an art exhibition in Central Auckland. It was uh, flags on postcards, and um, but of course, once I heard that there was cancelled, I thought, well, that's interesting. Any art exhibition being cancelled is, excuse the pun, a big red flag, isn't it? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> and yeah. um, and then your name was mentioned, and that the word Nazi was sort of thrown about because there were some among the dozens and dozens of flags on display, there were some Nazi flags. And um, so I went to see what what was going Mm -hmm. on here. And I read that you had written a piece um, to go alongside the exhibition. It seemed to me a very thoughtful piece that questioned, you know, what was it that bestowed power to flags, which is a good question. And, um, And it was absolutely clear. There's no way you are anything like a Nazi or, and it's just so ridiculous and malicious. And to me, the people that accuse, you know, who throw the word Nazism around like confetti are worse than not serious about fighting fascism or Nazism. I mean, it's, I, I can't, you know, it's one of the most disgusting things in my view, um, but really what is it is, it's a weapon, isn't it, that they're using to against people who don't sign up to a full set of woke dogmas is the impression I've got. Um, yeah, I mean, so, that whole
1: thing was, was very strange. Uh, so, I mean, you know, all that happened was basically some artists who I'd never heard of, I've never been to New Zealand, <laughs> emailed right. me uh, nicely asking if I'd write a short piece for an exhibition that I didn't have anything to do with like it was their idea they curated it they picked the flags they described to me a little bit what they were doing and I said oh sure you know they seemed very nice and young and enthusiastic and so I said sure I'll write you an essay uh, for free by the way (laughs) it certainly wasn't worth all this controversy um you know a short essay about flags and then the show came out and I guess a couple of people, uh, I think, I don't know, like middle-aged men who were obsessed with being like the best anti-fascist or something decided to make it into some kind of, uh, I I don't know, like terrible storm. And, you know, I, I, the, they, and it was very strange because they, some, some, some people were in New Zealand, which again, I've never been to and I've never met any of these people, uh, started saying that I was behind the exhibition and kind of imputing to me all of this kind of power which I don't have despite my name uh which just means poor by the way <laughs> um and and they were you know basically kind of m- making me out to be some kind of dark force and that you know and all of this and I was like that's just not what happened at all and if anyone wanted to know they could message me they could ask me right like what, you know, what's your relationship to this exhibition? And, and you know, after all, I wrote this fairly anodyne essay about flags, which is about 800 words long, uh, just to go in their catalogue or whatever. And, uh, yeah, it was very, very strange. And I was like, how weird. So, they, yeah, there was this big storm in New Zealand, as far as I could tell. And I, I spoke to the artists who were very upset about it, and they were very scared. And I think they'd even been threatened. And, you know, like, mm-hmm. it was really, you know, it was really bad. And I, I just got this terrible sense of like, what the hell is going on in New Zealand? Like, why are these like middle-aged men attacking these? I, even if you thought the show was like grossly provocative or whatever, you know, and it, and I don't think it was. I think it was interesting. I think the idea, and they weren't the actual flags, right? There were paintings of the flags, right, which is also important. Like, people are not uh, picking up on like metaphor and and complexity and provocation. They're they're simply going for the worst bluntest most literal interpretation of everything oh oh so if you exhibit this flag therefore you must be defending that whatever this country stands for i mean which is ridiculous you know there's like as far as i understood it hundreds of flags and you know and it was about reflecting on what flags mean it certainly wasn't about defending any particular flag right and it it's it's um i it's it seems to be answering to a need that some people have which is to be important and to be these great freedom fighters uh,
0: often on behalf of groups that they're not members of, um, as we see. And to do it it at the comfort, to do it at the comfort of their desks, at their keyboards.
1: Right. And, you know, and it it bears no relation to reality. It's very destructive. They, they often misrepresent things, you know, like they got all of the facts wrong about the exhibition, you know, including my involvement and, I was just like, fucking hell, I'm not going to New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> this place seems to, like, have gone bonkers.
0: Yeah. But, it's, it's, it's a handful of guys in the main. Oh. Yeah. In their bedrooms, pouring over material that and looking for Nazis in a deranged manner. Um, yeah.
1: But it's like, what does this word mean to them? You know, it's like, so... People were saying, mm. oh, well, Nina's already controversial well, she, because she's a turf, because she thinks that sexual difference is really important, which basically makes her a fascist, even though this is like the position that the vast majority of people have held for the vast majority of human time. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, so in, they, they robbed words of their meaning. You know, Nazism yeah. doesn't mean the same thing. Of uh, course, fascist it doesn't. doesn't. Uh, woman, uh, biological, all of those. With, Perhaps that's why it's not possible to have a rational discussion in that environment. Uh, well, of course, the parties are not willing to either on the other side if they're busy fabricating and, and yeah. making a narrative that's not there.
1: I think they need psychoanalysis, honestly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe, yeah. It's um, It's strange. I just want another sort of related to flags and the question of free speech. Uh, the I wanted to ask you um, whether you oh whether you think that um, desecrating a flag is covered by or should be covered by free speech? And there was the case. I think you mentioned this in your essay or your piece that mm-hmm. went with the expression about. Dred Scott, who was uh, in the U.S. in 1989, he had an art exhibition, didn't he, where he lay the U.S. flag on the ground and it was you know, entitled The Best Way to um, Display the Flag and the people were invited to walk on it and desecrate it. And I think in a in an appeal case, he won the, the Supreme Court ruled or the High Court there ruled that um, he was protected under freedom of expression um, and, and we had a similar case in 2003 in New Zealand, with flag burning at a protest, mm-hmm. an anti-Iraq war protest against an Australian prime minister who's visiting, and a New Zealand flag was burnt, and it went to an appeal court and um, won under the Bill of Rights here. So, but um, so there are some people, um, you know, who are very staunch free speech advocates who feel that you know something like flags is a little bit outside of speech. Um, and whether that should be protected in free speech what were your thoughts? I mean this is sort of out on the edges of free speech, but I was curious if you had a view on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think my my view is is probably going to be a bit b- bit boring in certain respects, which is that it's contextual. um i you know, I think in principle, I would tend towards a kind of you know free speech, um a strong free free speech position, which would include. Something like um, the destruction of flags, um, but I suppose it's it's always going to be in a context, and, and obviously, burning a flag in some situations is extremely inflammatory. Um, so I, uh, I don't know. I don't I don't necessarily have a strong position on flag. I, th- I think the Dred Scott exhibition is very clever. I I think because he. It it, it it was up to the visitors what they did with the flag, you know, the, it, whether they stepped on the flag to sign the book or not. So mm-hmm. this is a kind of, again, it's like a provocation. Like, I think the Mercy Pictures was a provocation to, to think about flags and, and representation. You know, they weren't, and I think it's important that they, again, that they weren't the actual flags. You know, these were not whatever an actual flag is, if you see what I mean. Like, right. these yeah. were representations of a, of a symbol. Um, And I, yeah, I... I don't know, I I think given how um, surveilled and policed and monitored people's behaviours and thoughts are and and how they are increasingly homogenous, I I would tend towards a a kind of almost absolute defence of of freedom of speech, particularly in an artistic context. Um, Because I think, yeah, there's just so much... Fear and uh, punishment, as we've seen, <laughs> for what are actually thoughtful and provocative exhibitions. And many artists, I mean, many female artists in Britain, for example, have been extremely attacked um, for for having gender critical views. They've lost work. They've lost shows. You know, it's so. Yeah, I mean, in this context, it seems very important to say no. Art art is 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 a a place precisely for. The expression of difficult ideas, um, not only because by expressing them in this field, then we kind of prevent them hopefully from becoming like real sources of violence, if you see what I mean. You know, like art and literature are places where we can exercise our imagination, um, so that we don't end up in kind of literal,
0: you know, violence. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and and also it's how we develop our ideas, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, we can't really develop them just turning them over in our heads and never expressing them in an outward fashion or coming up against other people and exchanging the ideas. I wanted to ask you also another sort of question on the edges of the sort of free speech debate. Um, you've, you've been really critical of the porn industry, I see, in talks that you've um, given. Have you Is that covered in the book? Do you touch on yes. that?
1: I talk about the NoFap movement, which uh-huh. is um movement of men who are kind of uh, want to get away from using pornography, that they feel like their lives have become dominated by it. Um, and so they engage in forms of abstinence from using pornography and masturbation um, for periods of days. And, you know, there's a, there's some interesting discussion on the, the effect that pornography is having on certain proportion of men who use it. Um, yeah, so I I know what I think I know what you're gonna say in terms of <laughs> the complexities of free speech and free expression and pornography, right? It's like I don't have a view on I it be, myself,
0: actually. I I think ah I I don't know what, you know, for one, I, I don't I don't think you could put that journey back in the bottle anyway. But what what is your thought?
1: Yeah, so so I mean I you know I struggle with this because obviously, like I say, I defend, you know, often quite extreme forms of art. Like, you know, obviously I defend Pasolini's salo but I, or whatever, you know, or like very, very extreme forms of literature, I, you know, difficult ideas, art shows that are provocative and so on and so forth, right? So I'm very keen to defend those. I think my issue with pornography, it's ultimately one, apart from all of the material damage that it does to participants and so on, um, the people in the in the films, um, it is that it's destructive of the imagination um, that, what I'm interested in in pornography is this precisely what the no-fat men talk about, which is this material effects it has on the way they see the world. Right. So, some of them describe um, being so addicted to pornography that they can't help but see the world in a pornographic light. You know, they they walk around and they see every woman as a potential pornographic object. You know that it's so affected their worldview that it's actually causing them to have an extremely destructive relationship to the world, like one of shame, one of um, you know, just very narrow forms of, of of projection that they feel like they can't speak to women normally because everything is filtered through like porn brain. So I, I would say something like, I'm I think the material effects of pornography and the sheer amount of hardcore porn and the you know, the just the access to it has been deleterious on the minds of largely men, but not only. Um, and I think that there should be kind of more and, and you know, a liberal culture seems to be very pro porn. You know, it's like, oh, porn is a natural expression of desire and the desire is good. But I think for a lot of people, desire is not straightforwardly good. And and if you're interested in psychoanalysis, what you say you want isn't necessarily what you what you want or what you should want. Um, and I think we you know, I talk a lot in the book about a kind of consumerist culture, which privileges this kind of um. This model of the subject, which is one that just kind of does things because they feel good or just takes things or, you know, very, very, uh, you know, toddler like position. Um, And so I think they what interests me is those discussions where people are taking a stand against these things and saying, no, I don't want to consume this. I don't actually want to destroy my imagination. I don't want to ruin my relationship with women through porn use. And I I'm very intrigued by that position because it goes against the mainstream um and it's not so much a freedom of expression it's not saying people can't make f- movies they want whatever but it is saying look these things do have an effect on people and to pretend that they don't like the same with all art and literature they do have an effect otherwise why are they meaningful to us you know mm. it we're not we're not kind of just blank uh carbon based data processing machines you know we have souls we have feelings we have relations um yeah so so i think it's it's to do with the material effects of these things and whether they actually genuinely um contribute to complexity of thought and and social being or whether they actually just create clouds of shame and and you know horror for
0: people right and um in your book do you have any sort of pointers for the way forward do you think in terms of dealing with or having having the sort of discussions that society needs to have about where men are and what we can do to to close the gaps where where those you know gaps are wide and difficult?
1: Yeah sure. I mean I think in the first place you know I talk a lot about forgiveness and uh, playfulness and grace and <laughs> humility and lots of these kind of um, humanist values or even kind of quasi-Christian values, um, which I think have been forgotten in this kind of, you know, binarism and this division, you know. So I talk a lot about how in order to get along we with each other, all of us, you know, we have to admit that we we all make mistakes, you know, that we're not always in it, um doing things in a kind of intentionally horrible way, like often we upset each other without meaning to, you know, this is just on a daily or weekly basis, you know, (laughs) even with people you care about, like, you know, it's, it's social life is actually quite tricky. Um, But that we we're all in a position of being both harmed and capable of harm. And, and if we start from that position, then we are more likely to kind of forgive and to get along. Um, You know, not to say that we, we don't acknowledge harm where it's very serious you know but to say in general most of the time this is not what we're talking about that there is a form of um reconciliation or social life uh you know reconciliation to social life that is um absolutely necessary if we are to kind of uh proceed um so it's quite gentle in that sense um and I think it's also yeah about recognizing that we all suffer and that to dismiss men's suffering um, as irrelevant or punishment for supposed previous centuries of, you know, crime or whatever, um, is again actually detrimental to the social whole. Um, And that men's suffering is just as real (laughs) as as women's suffering Um, and that it's not a zero sum game. You know, so I'm very critical of the idea that if one group progresses, another group must lose. I don't think that's how it works, although I think that's how we're taught to think in terms of these kind of black and white oppositions and about, you know, winning and losing and, you know, so on. Um, so yeah, I, I think in in the end it's quite a gentle, uh, book, but it's supposed to be a kind of reasonable restorative against the kind of invective and polemic. So I, I don't think it says anything particularly surprising to a lot of people.
0: Well, that's, it's, um, sounds like a very positive message and probably really a good one for the times that we're in. Um, Nina, it's been lovely talking with you. Do you, now where can people find you? Are you on Twitter?
1: Um, I am, but as, as in my role as compact editor. So I think my Twitter handle is Nina underscore compact or something like that. I can I can uh, find
0: it and put it in the notes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, I have I have a substack which I write very strange prose poetry on. Um <laughs> <laughs> which I think is just Nina And uh yeah, I think that's that's and, kind of it. And yeah. the best place to buy
0: your book is
1: well, yeah. I mean, in New Zealand, I'm not sure. I don't know how it works. I don't think it has distribution there. It's a Penguin not yet. Yeah. book, yeah. no, so I don't know. I don't know how. Probably online
0: it... then, like the Book Depository and and I, I think Amazon. Perhaps.
1: Yeah, I mean, I presume in New Zealand you can get like the Kindle version of books without. Yes. Yeah. So it's out on Kindle, is it? Yeah. 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 And there's also an audio version, which I recorded oh, is myself. Oh, it's there. Oh, great! It's hilarious. So you can listen to my my uh, clearly very beautiful voice. Okay. <laughs> <That's lovely. laughs>
0: well, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, no worries. Thanks, Daphne. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Ka kite anu.